0: Please find Psalm 26 with me. Psalm 26. Psalm 26. Let's go ahead and start in verse 1 and read it through. Psalm 26 and verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go round your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I ha- I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep away my soul, do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the assembly, I will bless the Lord. You've heard the saying before, truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, I, for one, believe it. The world is full of facts and stories and coincidences that are much stranger than anything we uh, could ever make up. So, for example, in 2011, there was a small meteor that went through the roof of a house in France. Uh, everyone in the house was, was okay, That's a very uh, rare occurrence, very unlikely. I think this probably makes it a little more unlikely. The name of the family that lived there where the meteor went through the house, the name of the family was Comet, Comet. So the meteor went through the roof of the Comet family. If I made that story up, you would say, Drew, that's just corny. That's too on the nose. That Be more plausible if you're going to make up a story that would never happen. Well, the truth is stranger than the fiction we would make up. I have the same thought about God. Truth is stranger than fiction. So in our Wednesday class, last Wednesday, we were talking about the incarnation of Jesus, how it is that he was both fully divine and fully human. That's the truth about Jesus. That's what the New Testament clearly indicates. And there's a certain mystery and a strangeness to that fact of Jesus. And, and what the heresies surrounding Jesus' incarnation do, which we talked about, What they inevitably do is try to remove the strangeness of this doctrine, either by downplaying his deity, which is what Arianism does, or downplaying his humanity, which is what Docetism does. And so the heretical beliefs, the wrong beliefs about Jesus are less strange, but they're also less true. Truth is stranger than fiction when it comes to God. I also think truth is stranger than fiction when it comes to virtue. When it comes to thinking about virtue, I've noticed this tendency uh, in myself and and, uh, in other people, a tendency to sort of truncate virtues, to make things like love or meekness or holiness very one-dimensional. We we want sort of a pat definition. I've got my little line. I know what that means. And inevitably, when we do that and we open the Bible, uh, our little pat definitions are confounded at some point. So, for example, Moses is said to be the meekest man on the face of the earth in Numbers 12. If we thought meekness meant weakness, if we thought meekness meant never raising one's voice, then we'll have no idea what to do with Moses when he smashes the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he grinds the golden calf into powder and he makes the people drink it. That's the meekest man on the face of the earth right there. So that true idea of meekness, whatever it is, that's another sermon for another time, that true idea of meekness is much stranger than the caricatured fiction that means never raise your voice, never do anything never do anything big. So I bring all this up because I think something like that is happening in this psalm. I think our caricatured ideas of certain virtues are confounded by a stranger truth. So I'm struck, the main thing I'm struck by in this psalm is the fact that it seems to hold two virtues together we often want to keep apart. So on the one hand, here's the first thing I'm struck with in this psalm. On the one hand the psalmist is clearly bold and confident he begins in verse 1 by asserting his integrity i have walked in my integrity in verse 3 he asserts his faithfulness in verse 4 his holiness in verse 8 he's talking about his love for god's house and the psalm ends in verse 11 again with an assertion of his integrity this is clearly a man who thinks that he's righteous and he's willing to say so he's confident about his righteousness he's confident about his standing before God. And maybe we're even reading this and saying, hey, tap the brakes a little bit. That seems a little bit kind of full of yourself. Yet on the other hand, I think there are signs throughout this psalm that the psalmist is clearly humble and deferential and reverent toward God. The psalm opens with a petition for God to vindicate. He doesn't simply assert his integrity. He asks God to vindicate it. He's announcing his intentions to approach the altar of God in this psalm. The altar is the place where atonement for sin is made in verse 6. While there in verse 11, he solicits God's grace, implying that he needs it. And I think there's no reason to read all of these as insincere or hypocritical. And so I read the psalm and I ask, which is it? Is the psalmist confident or is the psalmist humble? What, what is his problem? Is he full of himself or is he unsure of himself? Well, I want to suggest that some of our ideas about confidence and humility are often caricatures. The psalmist is neither full of himself nor unsure of himself. He is both confident and humble. He is what I'm going to call this morning confidently humble. This psalm, I think, has caused me to think that the true embodiment of boldness and humility are a little bit stranger than than our common caricatures of these virtues. So I want to explore this psalm. I want to walk through it and just notice some of these strange truths about virtues. So first of all, let's say this. We can be confident and reverent. We can be confident and reverent. A little introductory matter before we launch into the text. The big question people are always asking about the Psalms is what was the original use of this psalm? Now, we know many of them began as very personal compositions by people like David. and They're very personal in that way. Yet they all ended up being compiled into this book and used in Israel's public worship. And so the question people are always asking is, how was this psalm used by Israel in its public worship? And there are many cases when it's very obvious how it was used. But we're always asking, were they singing this at the Passover? Was this a Sabbath psalm? Was this sung at a funeral? We're always asking that. Well, it seems likely that this psalm was to prepare worshipers for worship. There are a number of psalms like this. There are really clear examples, Psalm 15 or Psalm 24, where a question is posed to worshipers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And then a response is made within the psalm about the preparations they've made to ascend the hill for worship, the ritual and ethical preparations they have made. This seems to be in that family of psalms. This psalm conforms to that preparation for worship pattern. It will end it with the psalmist standing in the great assembly to bless the Lord. That's where he ends up in this psalm. And it begins in verse 1 with an assertion of the ways he's prepared himself to do that. And so I think that's the way to think of this psalm. Someone is preparing to worship, and they are asserting the preparations they have been making to do that. So this is verse 1 again. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So in verse 1, the psalmist invites scrutiny, God's scrutiny of his life. He wants God to vindicate me. Your version might say, set me in the clear. Set me in the clear. But he doesn't ask this because he doesn't know the outcome of the scrutiny. He asks because he thinks he does know the outcome. When God scrutinizes him, he thinks he knows what God will find. He says his lifestyle and his faith are unimpeachable. The lifestyle is the phrase, I've walked in my integrity. The faith is the phrase, I've trusted in the Lord. On that basis, he says, I'm certain I'm prepared for worship. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. The psalmist is not claiming sinless perfection. I think there are some misleading ways to translate uh, some of this. Some have, instead of integrity in verse 1, blameless life. I have led a blameless life. But the word there literally means whole heart. I have walked with a whole heart, or I have walked wholeheartedly. I think integrity is a really good translation of that. Our word integrity is related to the word integer. you know what an integer is? An integer is a whole number. An integer is undivided, without division. And what David is claiming is to have that sort of heart in himself, a heart without division, a heart without hypocrisy, a whole heart pointed in one direction and not two. And so one man put it this way, when David claims such wholeheartedness, he's not touting some concocted perfection, but an overall consistency. Not a sinless record, but a godly disposition. He's not claiming to be without fault, but claiming to be without apostasy. And I think that's right. In verse 2, he uses the language of refining metal. He says, test my heart and my mind. God is invited to test the metal of this would-be worship. And he's confident in verse 3 of what this test will reveal. He says, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. He says, I have lived in constant awareness of God and his character, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. And so he says, being mindful of God's character, dwelling on God's goodness, my life is conformed to those virtues because I am so focused on them. Emulating God has led him to lead a God-shaped, So, do you see the strange combination just within these first few verses? On the one hand, the confidence is obvious. He's walked in his integrity and he says so. But I would argue there was also subtle humility, subtle reverence in these verses. So he doesn't simply announce his walk of integrity. He's not bragging to a group of people about how awesome he is. He asks God to vindicate it in verse 1. You take a look, God, and see for yourself. When he invites God to test his heart in verse 2, there there is an element of evaluation. There's also an element of purification, which is a part of refining metal. Burn off anything that's not walking in integrity. And then in verse 3, he says all this integrity he has in his life is just an imitation of God's. It's his steadfast love. It's his faithfulness that has led the way. You know, all humility really is is having a true reality-based understanding of yourself. Humility is not some put on where we walk around and we you know, flagellate ourselves and we talk about how awful we are and how terrible we are. Often that's kind of a pretense and not true humility. All humility is is having a true understanding of yourself. And if you have that, of course you will never never think too highly of yourself. But by the same token, Even a humble person can clearly see when they're walking in integrity, just as they can see when they are not walking in integrity. It's no violation of humility to see yourself as you really are. It's no violation of humility when a Christian says amen to what John writes when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. It's not a sin to know you have eternal life and to say so. It's not pride to sing the first song we sang this morning, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, and mean it. There's no sin in that. There's no pride in that. Of course, there is a spiritual danger of pride. There is a danger of thinking too highly of ourselves. But I also think there's a danger in thinking too low of ourselves. To be plagued by guilt for sins God has already forgiven is a spiritual danger. To see ourselves as only sinners and not as redeemed sinners That's a spiritual danger. To have the worst thing we've ever done be more central to our identity than being children of God and being his disciples. That's a spiritual danger. To be incapable of receiving encouragement because we are so despondent. That's also a spiritual danger. Now there are built-in safeguards in this prayer. He's not bragging to other people here. He's affirming his readiness to worship He solicits God's evaluation. He gives praise to God in verse 3 for being the model of all these traits he's trying to emulate. And so we can be confident about our right standing before God and continue to be reverent and solicitous of God. There's a strange thing happening. There's a nuancing of many of these virtues. Let's continue in verse 4. We have another strange combination. And I want to say number 2, we can be hostile and holy. We can be hostile and holy. So... The opening few verses of this psalm are about the positive dimensions of the psalmist's character, his integrity, the godly things he embraces. Well, in verse 4, he moves to the negative dimensions of that integrity. All the ungodly things he shuns. This is verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. So the integrity the psalmist possesses, He now says it's protected through shunning the company of evildoers who could influence me away from the pursuit of all that good stuff in verses 1 through 3. There is a sort of holy hostility toward those whose eyes are not focused on God. As much as I love you in equal measure, I hate them and what they do. And I think all of this should remind us of the opening words of the Psalter. In Psalm 1 and verse 1, we are told, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The book of Psalms opens actually with a sort of holy hostility. The opening words, blessed is the man, we're prepared to find out who the blessed man is. Only to hold off for a verse there to find out the kind of person who will not be blessed. The Psalms open by telling us we've got to know where not to go. We've got to know who not to spend time with because who you spend your time with and who you listen to and what you fill your head with, this will all determine what you become and what you become determines your relationship with God. So Psalm 26 recognizes this same truth. The person who listens to the wicked eventually becomes wicked and wicked people will not be blessed. We cannot take our cues from the wicked and sinners and scoffers and be blessed by God at the same time. And so part of righteousness is knowing what to shun. Part of righteousness is having a strong bias against all that is evil. And so the psalmist avoids the houses of evildoers. In verse 6, though, he says, there is a house I want to go to. It's not their house. It's this one, verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So all the scenes from verses 6 through 8 are in the temple. In verse 6, we're to imagine the the ritual washing of hands that takes place in preparation for worship. Now, ironically, I never put this together quite until uh, I was studying. Uh, Clean hands in the Old Testament, clean hands are a prerequisite for cleaning one's hands. When you go to clean your hands to enter the temple, ritually wash your hands. A prerequisite for doing that is having clean ethical hands in your life. Do you remember the passage in, in Isaiah? Where Isaiah excoriates Israel for dirtying their hands all week, doing whatever they want and being absolutely filthy, and then sort of treating the temple as a laundromat to get clean? I do what I want, I get dirty, I visit the temple, I get clean. We do what we want in the week, we abuse who we want, we exploit who we want, and then we go and do the magic rituals, get clean, and then we get to repeat over and over again. God had no time for that. And the psalmist knows that. So notice in verse 6 what he says, I wash my hands in innocence. I've brought clean hands to this hand-washing ritual. I brought the clean hands of a holy life to this sink, now to be washed symbolically. Having washed his hands, he's now ready to approach the altar. The altar is the symbol of God's presence and God's mercy. Being at this place moves him to thanksgiving and remembrance, verse 7. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Notice he's not talking about himself within the temple. He's talking about God's wondrous deeds. In verse 8, being in this place moves the psalmist to praise and worship when he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So I think all this worship talk helps fill in what was happening in the beginning of the psalm. He wasn't bragging to a bunch of people about how great he was. He was eagerly announcing his readiness to enter God's house. He wasn't being so full of integrity so he could win a merit badge, but so he would be worthy to enter God's house and to sing his praises and not his own. He wanted to be in the presence of God's glory so he could be pro- proclaimed thanksgiving to that God and tell of God's wondrous deeds, not his own wondrous deeds. Well, continue in verse 9. I think we could take verses 9 and 10 as a part of his prayer from within the temple. And his mind shifts back to the hostility side of holiness. Verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. Being in this holy place strengthens his resolve to to stay away from all the unholy places. He says to himself, or he says to God perhaps, it's so much better to be here with you, God, than to be there with them. Because the thing about sitting with sinners in their corruption is that you'll also be sitting with them in their judgment. He says in verse 9, they're going to be swept away, and I don't want to be with, with them when that happens, so I don't want to be with them now before it happens either. And so I think it's fascinating to see how the psalmist goes in verse 4 from hostility toward evil ones to verse 6, adoration of the holy one, back in verse 9 to hostility toward evil ones, from hostility to holiness to hostility. Does that seem a strange combination, to use the word hate in the context of his, of his worship? I think it ought not be strange. All the psalmist has done here is portray both sides of holiness, a positive and a negative side of holiness, embracing that which is holy and shunning that which is contrary to it. To be holy is to be separate from that which defiles, and all he has expressed is his desire to be separate from that which defiles. So what do we do with these verses? Well, I don't think it would be at all out of place to be sitting in church, to be observing the Lord's Supper say, and to have a moment of holy hostility. Not the self-righteous contempt of the Pharisee who said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. That, that's how this goes very wrong, and that's a danger. But I think it's not out of place to have a gratitude for the depths from which God has saved us, to remember from where we have come. So maybe there was a time before you were a Christian when normally at this time on a Sunday morning you would be hungover. I don't think it's wrong to let your mind reflect back to that stage of your life and to be grateful for, for the place from which God has saved you and to resolve, I'm not going back there, I hate that life. Maybe in a time before you were imitating God, your life was a mess and the company you kept was not the company of God's people. It would be right to sit in the company of God's people on a morning like this and to be glad that you're here, in the company of God's people, and to have a revulsion at the idea of going back to that life we've left. And to even pray something like this in verse 9, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. I've left them, and I plan on staying gone. We can be holy and hostile. Which brings us to number 3. We can be righteous without self-righteousness. This is verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the assembly, I will bless the Lord. That interesting balance between confidence and humility is all over this psalm. So in verse 12, he announces how stable his footing is. My feet are on level ground. In other words, I don't plan on slipping. I'm not in a position where I'm about to teeter off the edge into apostasy. My footing is stable, unlike the wicked in verse 9 who are about to be bowled over by God's judgment. They are not going to stand. They are about to slip. And so he says at the end of the psalm, I am where I should be. I'm living the life, the kind of life I should be. And yet at the same time, as he's confident, as he's restating his integrity, there is still a solicitation for God's help and mercy. Verse 11, redeem me and be gracious to me. Implication, I need redeeming and I need graciousness. He is announcing that that I have met the sort of qualifications to proceed in God's presence. He's been walking in integrity and not hypocrisy. He has clean hands. He's fulfilling God's vision for worshipers, that their worship not be a substitute for right living, but an extension of that right living. He's doing all of that. And yet the psalmist still recognizes how much he depends on redemption and grace. He has done all he possibly can this week to be in good standing before God. But he knows the fundamental and final thing that puts us in good standing with God is God's mercy. We have a nice book into the psalm with a slight variation. So in verse 1, he opened with this declaration I have walked in my integrity, reflecting on his past. It ends with this declaration in verse 11 I shall walk in my integrity, looking forward. So as he prepared to enter the temple, he confidently asserted his past integrity. But now within the temple, he announces his intention to continue that walk. I shall walk. I will not rest on my laurels of past spiritual success. I resolve to continue that walk. I sort of read it as if he's been recharged, remotivated to walk in integrity. But none of it causes him to puff out his chest. The final words of this psalm show a man standing in the assembly of God's people, blessing not himself, not singing his own praises, but singing the praises of God. In the great assembly, I will bless, not myself, I will bless the Lord. Here is a righteousness minus the self. So I think this is a very interesting psalm. It gives nuance, it gives a strangeness to Christian virtue. We have here an example of bold humility. We're invited to put together two traits we don't normally put together, even pit against each other. I would say it is not at all scandalous to quote Joshua who told told Israel to be strong and courageous, to go out in confidence and boldness. It's not not a scandal to say that and, and to say we should do that. And neither is it scandalous to quote Paul in words he applied to Jesus when he said, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's not scandalous to quote that either. So why should it be scandalous to say we should embody both the boldness Joshua preached and the humility Paul preached? What this psalm tells us to do is to, first of all, walk in integrity. And let us have a self-awareness to know whether or not we are. And if we are not, let us repent. And if we are, we can say so. Not as a badge of honor, but as an announcement of our readiness to enter God's presence. And to lift our holy hands in worship to him. And when we lift those holy hands, what the psalmist does next is solicit God's help resolving to avoid the dens of iniquity, anything that will will mar my holiness, and in the end, resolve to keep walking in integrity. I have walked integrity. I come and worship God and praise him for all he's done, and I resolve to keep walking in integrity. So maybe there's someone here this evening. Maybe you have erred in either of these directions. Maybe you've been sinful proud. Maybe you've been a sort of sinful despondent. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come. To get the confidence that can only come by being one of God's children, and also get the humility that only comes with being one of God's children, we are called to be both things. To go out in faith, to go out in confidence, and to go out in humility as well. If there's anyone that needs spiritual help of any kind, come forward now as we stand and sing. God is
1: calling
0: the prodigal, come without delay, here or here in calling, calling now for the Though you've wandered so far from His presence, come today, hear His loving voice calling still.